Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Humans of Speedway podcast, where we chat to some of the stars of the sport, both on and off the track. I'm Ian Brannan, and a bit like my next guest in this episode, I watched Speedway as a youngster and eventually went into broadcasting and the media. Whereas I played records and did the occasional football phone-in on radio stations, this human of Speedway who joins me now went on to become the voice of British Speedway and the GP series. You've welcomed him into your home to commentate on every GP over the past 10 years, as well as countless iconic moments in domestic Speedway. Oh, and he's also got his own podcast alongside his sparring partner in the commentary box, Kelvin Tatum, the Tatum and Pearson podcast. Is a great listen too, but it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the Humans of Speedway podcast, Nigel Pearson. Ian, how are you? I'm good, thanks. It's, it's great to catch up with you. It was weird calling you uh, yesterday and you hear this voice coming down the phone and it's like, <laughs> this is the guy off the Speedway and the darts and everything. <laughs> I don't always talk like that, you know. I do have a natural <laughs> voice away from the microphone. I really do. <laughs> but like you, Ian, with your presenter voice on, your voiceover. This uh, is Ian Brannan on Real Radio. <laughs> there's a flashback <laughs> I was a fan of yours back in the day oh wow this is like a mutual appreciation society it's... <laughs> anyway on to where we're at right now we're in May and this is a time of year that you would usually be mega busy but you're not you're at home oh absolutely uh, you know May June time I mean May's ridiculous for me because obviously I work in three sports the football the darts and the speedway um, and, and, you know, May was going to be uh, Latvia, um, Bellevue, obviously the Speedway of Nations, Germany, Landshut, uh, and also uh, the Grand Prix in Warsaw, the first Grand Prix of the year. So that would have been hectic. Premier League darts was, would have been reaching a conclusion. The football season would have been over by now. Uh, so, yeah, to, to go from that to actually being sat at home for a while and with all this time uh, is quite bizarre, really. And um, I don't really want to go through it again, if I'm honest. No, it's an experience, and I think we've learned a few things about ourselves and, and the world, but, um, yeah, yeah, it's not something you want to make an annual event. No, certainly not. Uh, the I think we can learn from it. You know, I, I walk through my village, and, you know, whereas previously you just get on with your daily, like, daily walk, your daily life, you know, it's nice that people speak to each other. Morning, morning, yeah. you know, and, and that never used to happen, you know, so uh, it helps when the sun's shining. Uh, <laughs> it'd, be nice, it'd be nice to think that we can all be nicer and nicer people and more chilled out about life. But I don't know, when everything gets back to normal, you know, we'll all be in a rush to get back to how it was. But we'll see, we'll see. Are you going to have possibly a very busy end to the year, though, as a result? Because they're on about reorganising some of this stuff, aren't they? 
Very much so. You know, they've already reorganised the Monster Energy FIM Speedway of Nations to give it its correct title for uh, the end of October. Uh, and also the information that I'm getting is, or the information and opinion, um, is that it could be a very hectic September-October because it, there could well be, you know, the Grand Prix crammed into September-October. We know Voyans is scheduled in September. They've rescheduled Prague for September. Um, there'll be a couple of... Uh, Torrens already scheduled for October. Yeah. So there's three. Uh, so that'll be hectic on the Grand Prix scene. Uh, but also, you know, I still remain hopeful that by the middle of August, some sort of British League racing can take place. So hopefully, you know, that's going to be busy as well. Uh, and then there's a, the um, the football question, because I've already been asked, you know, about my availability and willingness to work in behind-closed-doors situations for radio. Uh, so, yes, it could well be that we could go from all, you know, from, from zero to... <laughs> Absolute chaos in terms of a diary. So let's see. I hope so. Any kind of sport, just get me out of here. Speedway does kind of lend itself to to social distancing in a way, though, doesn't it? Because, you know, the the riders are obviously well protected when they're out on the track, so they're not in in contact with each other in that way. But also the stadiums, you know, with the best will in the world, the GPs aside, most league meetings, you know, you could probably spread things out around the stadiums a bit more than maybe they do at the moment in some places. Easily, easily. I mean, you look at um, arenas like Kings Lynn, Peterborough, you look at Leicester, you look at Scunthorpe, you know, all across the various levels of the sport. And even in grandstands, you know, uh, crowds tend to sort of congregate as close towards the start-finish line as they can. Well, they're going to have to get used to the new normal of spreading out. There is potential there, and Speedway can present its case to government officials, and social distancing, you know, I'm sure... There'll be stewards at the turnstiles to ensure that um, social distancing me- measures are adhered to. And I, I noticed recently, I, I noticed a report that there are serious question marks for the economy about the two-metre rule. And the World Health Organization recommends one metre, I'm led to believe. So that could be brought into question by the time Speedway gets going. Maybe it's only one metre or a metre and a half. So... And that affects all forms of businesses, doesn't it? And, mm. I, I, yeah, to answer your question, I do believe Speedway can can adapt and can continue racing at the first available opportunity. And, of course, that's what everybody wants, the fans, but not least the riders, because, you know, that is their, their bread and butter and their income to get out there racing. And um, some of them have been forced, I've seen, to take up alternative careers in the meantime. Wow, yeah. yeah. Nikolai Clint, I spoke to him on the phone. Nikolai's um, delivering for Tesco. Yeah, uh, I noticed in the Speedway Star magazine as well that uh, Ricky Wells, who of course has ridden in the World Cup for America, is now working in uh, an Amazon warehouse in Doncaster. Wow. I mean, these are remarkable stories, aren't they? Yeah. Kyle Bickley, I believe, is working at Morrison's supermarket. And fair play to these lads for getting off their backside and replacing their lost income with a little bit of, of, of money coming in. And fair play to them. I like to see hardworking people. And they're self-employed. They can't be furloughed or anything like that by by their clubs. They get paid per point. So, you know, they they, they have to go out and replace the income somehow, some way. And I I admire that. I know riders have got some sponsors that have given them a job as well. So fair play, lads, I say. Ultimately, you've got to put bread on the table, haven't you? And, uh, you know, I think uh, all power to their elbow for for going out there and helping out other people, but also helping out themselves as well. Yeah, and, and I enjoyed the chat with Nikolai. He's a good lad, Nikolai Clint, and he's got his head screwed on and... 
you know, uh, when I was talking to him, I was asking him questions. He said, "Why are you after a, do- a job with Tesco then, night?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> imagine knocking on the door. Hi, here's your delivery. There you go. Enjoy. <laughs> just to keep the old vocal cords going, you know. You could you could rent yourself out just to commentate on people's uh, everyday happenings in their life. Here comes Clint now in the van, turns left into the cul-de-sac and now rings the doorbell. Sensational delivery by Nikolai Clint. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Definitely something there. Uh, let's take you back to the uh, to, right to the start, though, because on Humans of Speedway, what we want to do is get a bit of the, the history of how people found their way into the sport, not necessarily the riders. And in your case, you have become the voice of Speedway for probably a, uh, an entire generation of people by now. Um, and that's the present, but obviously you were a big Speedway fan as a youngster too. Still living the dream, really, Ian, for me, because, you know, I, I used to live in, in Selby, a little village outside Selby called Thorpe Willoughby in North Yorkshire, in between Leeds and York. Yeah. And um, that's where I spent the first years of my life until my father got a job down back in the West Midlands, which is where he's always been from originally anyway, uh, hence the West Bromwich Albion link. Um and, and we moved down to the West Midlands when um, in the early 80s. Now, the first years of my life were spent going to Hull Speedway, watching the Vikings at the Boulevard. But also once a month, we'd come down to my grandparents in the West Midlands at Cradley Heath and go to Cradley. And also as a, an occasional treat on a Saturday, Dad would take me to the Shea to watch Halifax. On a Thursday, he'd take me to Ollerton to watch Sheffield. And on the odd occasion, he'd take me to Quibble Park to watch Scunthorpe as well. And I was gripped by it, absolutely gripped by it. You know, every Wednesday at the Boulevard, first thing I'd do after going through the turnstiles would go to the club shop. Dad would allow me one photograph per week of a rider, Bobby Beaton, Ivan Major, Joe Owen, Graham Drury, Frank Orfrit, whoever. Uh, then we'd get the programme. Um, Dad wouldn't let me uh, on the race card until I think I was about nine or ten. So he filled the programming because I was six when I went to the first meeting. And I was absolutely gripped by Speedway, Ian, and to the extent that, you know, I, I talked I talked school colleagues to to, to to boredom, really, about it, because they weren't interested. All they wanted to talk about was football and rugby. And I was talking to them about Speedway, you know, uh, colleagues at, at school, fellow pupils at school had got posters of Kevin Keegan and Eddie Gray up on their bedroom wall. I'd got Bobby Beaton and Ivan Major on my wall, and, and I just loved it, and, and it's still in the blood now, and... My 10-year-old son, Liam, I took him to the British final at Bellevue last year. Um, he went in the club shop and got a Bellevue replica jersey. I took him a lap of the track, gave him a walk of the track. He absolutely loved it. And I know that's privileged because of who I am. But he sat next to me in the commentary box at the British final with Ty Wuffenden on my left, Kelvin Tatum on my right, and Liam sat next to Ty. Wow. And and, and what an experience that was for the, for my boy and... I'm hoping that he may be tempted away from the iPad and the PS4 and the Switch and maybe enjoy a bit of life Speedway more often when we can get going again, Ian. There is something about it, isn't there? I think there's the smell, there's the excitement of watching the bikes warming up at the start. It's 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 sort of a whole occasion, maybe mm. a little bit more than, say, football. You go in there, you watch the match and you're out again. There's, 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 there's more aspects to it, isn't there, some, in some way? Bikes warming up, the music over the tannoy, mm. you know, that's something that promoters these days have to take more seriously as well is, is meeting presentation, in my opinion, you know. Find the right music as a balance for your older fans and younger fans, you know. Um, if we're trying to get a new generation of supporters into Speedway, 
we need decent sound systems and we need decent music and we need professional pr presentation. Uh, so that needs to be taken more seriously. But uh, no, I, I, it was all part of it, Ian. As you say, the all-round package of the music, the smell of the bikes, the bikes warming up, the noise of the bikes warming up, the, the parade music, the riders coming out and waving to the crowd. And it was all, it's, it's all part of that package. And, you know, I love to see clubs that make an effort with the kids, you know, Swindon, Wolverhampton, uh, Birmingham. You know, the, the kids come out on parade with them, holding the hands of the riders. And that's an experience they'll never, ever forget. So, no, it, it is the all-round package of Speedway. And, you know, if you've got one race that's pretty processional or boring, you just move on to the next one. Uh, and, and it's not too far away. So, no, it's a great, great all-round package. And also, you know, TV companies love it. It's, it's tailored for television as well. And, you know, you've got people say British Speedway's on the slide and struggling. Well, you've got two TV companies vying for the rights last season mm. for a five-year deal. Wow, and and that's a that's a first time that's happened really for for a long time, isn't it? In terms of the you know a, a deal of such length and such size for Eurosport. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that BT Sport were there when nobody else was for Speedway. Mm. You know, absolutely. Sky, Sky Sports decided to end their contract two years early. Uh, I think I just think they felt that they were moving in other directions with their programming. Um, and I'm delighted. I'm still part of Sky with the darting, of course, which is a huge honour. Um, and BT were there. And, and, you know, the sport needs to be grateful to BT. And what Eurosport have come forward with to offer the sport as well uh, is, is fantastic. So, you know, yes, we can all say that British Speedway is doomed, it's finished, it's on the slide. It's not quite ready to write the obituary for British Speedway just yet. In fact, far from it. And I'm not just saying that with a PR hat on, it's something that I genuinely believe. If it's that poor, if it's that bad, why were TV companies bidding to, to, to show the sport for the next five years? What's changed over the years, do you think, with Speedway? Because when we, when we look back at the 1950s, and we sort of briefly mentioned there, let's say, for example, Oddsall, it used to be full of 50,000 or more people every week. Mm. And it used to be the case around the country. And then it was still very popular, I think, in the you know the seventies and, and and the eighties, and Massively, so, yeah. somewhere th along the line, something changed. I mean, what was that Speedway's fault? You know, not marketing things right at the right time, or were people just wooed by glitzier things in their lives? Well, I'm pretty firm on this, Ian, and pretty consistent in what I say about this. Um, society has changed. In the seventies, you had no luxurious cinemas. I mean, where, where, where I lived in Fort Willoughby, I, I look at Selby back in the 70s and 80s. Where was there for my mum and dad to go out to a nice restaurant? The Owl at Hamilton was all right. And, but generally, generally then there, Ian, there wasn't so much for people to do. We only had three TV channels. Now, you've got the television, the smart TV. You've got luxurious cinemas for a night out. You've got restaurants galore. Mm. Uh, you've got the retail parks with your the likes of your Frankie and Benny's and TGI Fridays. You know, you know what I'm saying, don't you? Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, they weren't around in the 70s and 80s. So, to, really, to sum it up, Ian, it's a different world now in 2020 to how it was when I went to Hull in 1976 and loved it. Kids have got other things to do. I look at my own kids. You know, we've got to get them away from the iPad, the PS4, the Switch, the whatever else doobry they've got. You know. I played Subutio as a kid. Now my lad wants to play Roblox or Fortnite on an electronic gadget. You know, <laughs> I played Scale Extric. You know, I love going to the Speedway. These things 
have all it's a completely different world and Speedway has suffered and yes okay I'm sure mistakes have been made along the way with the sport but I believe the Grand Prix now is a better product than any world final I was at Wembley in 81 when people say it's the greatest ever world final there was two good races Ian there was two good races I've commentated on Grand Prix meetings at Cardiff in Poland and and Sweden as well, and the racing has been phenomenal. Last year at Rotslav in Poland, that Grand Prix was one of the best. Kelvin and I agreed afterwards that was one of the best Grand Prix we've ever commentated on. It's a better product now than even a than, than the halcyon days of the sixties, seventies, and eighties one-off World Finals. It's it's better racing now, and well, I'll argue that till I'm blue in the face, but you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I genuinely believe that it's an ever an ever-changing industry, an ever-changing world. Um, but, you know, I can honestly say if I wasn't working in Speedway, I'd still pop along and go and watch it, for sure. You're listening to the Humans of Speedway podcast. Welcome along. I'm Ian Brannan, and we're in conversation with the voice of British and Grand Prix Speedway, Nigel Pearson. Well, one of them, alongside your legend, Kelvin Tatum. Um, we're talking about his uh, initial history of uh, getting into Speedway as a youngster, visiting every track there is going around Yorkshire, but uh, then a move to the West Midlands beckoned. Ironic timing, really, Ian, because we moved down to the West Midlands after Hull had closed. Hull were evicted from the Boulevard in 81, and we moved in 82. And in 1983, Cradley had a team that wiped the floor. Mm. And I'm talking... I can even remember the riding order off the top of my head. Riding at number one, Simon Wigg. At number two, Lance King. Three, Eric Gunderson. Four, Alan Graham. Five, Phil Collins. And down at reserve, Peter Rohn and Jan O. Pedersen. Now, that yeah. team wiped the floor, lost two league meetings all season, were scoring 50s and 60s every, every Saturday at Dudley Wood, and the fans loved it. But it was, a, it was so one-sided. You'd walk to Dudley Wood thinking on a nice sunny night, oh, brilliant, Cradley versus Hackney tonight. And you knew Cradley were going to hit late 40s, early 50s over a 13-heat format. But the fans loved it, absolutely loved it. And, you know, Gunderson became a hero of mine. And I know we're going to talk about favourite all-time riders, but Gunderson, Eric, uh, the say never meet your heroes. What a legend of a bloke, by the way. He is fantastic as a man. Lovely family. And, and, no, that was it was remarkable timing speedway wise for me that we moved down from Yorkshire and then Cradley started and and then I'd go to Cradley every Saturday, Wolverhampton every Monday on the bus from King Swinford, um, which was probably halfway between Cradley Heath and Wolverhampton. And um, there was a speedway special bus that West Midlands Travel put on from King Swinford to Dudley Wood on a Saturday just for the speedway. Wow. And then uh, Wolverhampton on a Monday after school, get the bus with my mates. There was about three or four of us, and we'd all go to the Speedway at Wolverhampton. So, because that reopened in 84, uh, Peter Adams moved from Cradley and, and reopened Wolverhampton in 84. Great times, great times. A great team as well. I think for me, I, I guess similar to you, when I used to go watch Bradford, there was that era where Bradford were firing on all cylinders, and same sort of thing. You knew when you turned up that whoever, whoever the opposition were were going to get absolutely spanked <laughs> that night. I think at Oddsley, and some some visiting riders were probably beaten on the motorway going up or down to Oddsall or across. I think some some riders were travelling to meetings thinking, we haven't got a chance here, I hate this place. We've got to try and beat Gary Avalok, Joe Screen, Sean Wilson, yeah. riders like that, Mark Loram in 97. We've got to try and beat these riders. 
And Kelvin agrees with me, and he tells me, he says definitely he could he noticed looking at the opposition's pits area, riders would arrive at Odsall beaten in their head already. It was so different to anything else and, and remains that case even to this day because it's still standing, but it held thousands of people. I remember the world final in 1990, thousands of people from all over the world there. An incredible atmosphere. Yes, I went to both world finals at Odsall actually. 1985, won by Eric Gunderson. And then, and that was in a runoff with Hans Nielsen. Cool. Wow. <laughs> I was 15. I was 15 at the time and I couldn't watch the start because I wanted Eric to win so badly. I was absolutely a bag of nerves. And when he won, I jumped up and down like like a madman. <laughs> and 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 and, uh, and then in ninety, Per Jonsson won there as well. Fantastic crowds, fantastic occasions. And the way I see Odsall now, I have noticed a little glimmer, a little glimmer of hope. Nothing more than that. Um, that maybe stock cars and speedway can come together. Uh, the track. Although it's got the hospitality areas on the third and fourth turn, I do know the Speedway Control Bureau track inspectors passed it for suitable for Speedway again about three or four years ago. Wow. Um, and I know there is interest from a stock car promoter. Also, what the heck are Bradford doing playing at Drew Dewsbury? Come on, get back to Odsall, please. Bradford Bulls need to be back in Bradford. Not Dewsbury. Nothing against Dewsbury at all. But come on, there's a stadium there lying empty. And if you can get three sports back in there, why not? It was always the thing at Odsall, wasn't it? The whole taking the turf up and uh, putting it back down again for, for rugby. And, and there must surely be a way, if somebody yes. puts their mind to it, of, of sorting that out. Especially with technology in this modern day and age. Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> there are turfs, turf pallets. You know, you can put pallets down. It is possible. I can't believe, you know, that, that, that it can't happen. And it's only the corners, really, that... Yeah, the rugby league pitch would have to probably come in a, a little bit, but that's a small price to pay to get the Bulls back to Bradford, surely. The Dukes have been keeping you occupied during this lockdown time, though. I've been producing a 20... During this time where I've been sat at home, I've been producing um, a souvenir programme-style 2020 Dukes publication, actually. Um, and I've... Uh, it's had a good response. And I've been writing about my memories of Otzel and the Shea and... And I've interviewed Neil Evitz. We've got Gary Havelock lined up for the next one. Kelvin's done a bit about his time at Bradford. And, it, and I've done the same with Hull Vikings as well. And I've really enjoyed doing those, reminiscing um, about the great days at, at Bradford, Halifax and Hull and great history. And, and what they've got in common there, East Yorkshire, West Yorkshire, there is no speedway in yeah. Hull, Bradford or Halifax. How many fans has that cost British Speedway? And maybe that's one of the reasons why viewing figures on TV are so good and people read Speedway Star by subscription or whatever because they still love Speedway, but they haven't got a track to go to. I think you make a very good point. And, you know, they, they were iconic names as, as well. I mean, particularly when you, when you talk there about the Dukes. I mean, I know that there were some second half races with a, with a, with a Dukes team, weren't there, a, a year yeah. or two ago. And, you know, it was exciting to see the name on the on the programme, even though it was a second half um you know, meet, meeting really that yeah. didn't really mean so much, but it was nice to see the 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 you know the elephant and and all that on the <laughs> on the on the on the race jackets and I, the rivalry as well. When you look at Bellevue, you know the rivalry between which, between Halifax slash Bradford and Bellevue. You know that was one of the big speedway rivalries as well. It was, and a little bit like down in the West Midlands now. Yeah, Cradley Coventry, um, Wolverhampton Coventry. Yeah. 
Cradley Wolverhampton, these local derbies that pulled in huge crowds are, are, are no longer taking place. How many fans has that cost British Speedway? No Coventry, no Cradley Heath. You know, how many fans has that cost British Speedway? That They are huge misses for British Speedway, in my opinion, and, and tragic in many ways. Um, and that's why I admire so much the hard work that people are putting in with the modern-day sports. The, 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 I, I do know how much hard work goes in from people behind the scenes, and it has to be applauded. And anybody who jumps on the back and just does nothing but slag them off really is, is so out of order, it's unbelievable. But you have experienced life on that side of the fence as well. You know, you're heavily involved in the, uh, the Dudley and Cradley Heathens revival. When that came around, you were a chairman and a director. How did that come about, and... What have you learned from that experience? <laughs> <laughs> where do I start? Uh, don't read social media where people abuse you, slag you off for only doing it to make money. What a load of nonsense. It came about in 2009, 2010. Uh, there was a three-team tournament staged at Swindon with Reading, Oxford, Swindon and Cradley. And there was a crowd of over 2,500 there, I'm led to believe. And... And there were, I think there were about 500 Cradley fans who travelled. And then there was Billy Hamill's farewell at Wolverhampton. And the terracing was a sea of green, red and white scarves. And Chris Van Stratton got together with Gary Patchett, who was at Birmingham at the time. And they, it was their idea to put a team in league racing in the National League. Then they came to me. What do you think? Do you want to join us as our... As a promoter, if you like, do you want to, you know, become part of the club? And I jumped at the chance. Yes, of course. I only had certain time available to put into it, but we did it, uh, and we did it for ten years. But the frustration of that was we didn't have the support of the local council to try and find a piece of land closer to home. We had a couple of close shaves where we thought we'd hit the jackpot. It didn't happen. Um, and as the years went on, the fans got a little bit more fed up and started turning on us, saying, why are you doing this? You're not making any effort to find a new track. And we were. We mm. were. I had I had several meetings back in 2014 with Dudley Council, probably six or seven meetings that year. And was that just to waste my time? Because I wasn't interested. I just wanted to carry on racing at Wolverhampton. No. So that, that was a learning exercise. It's toughened me up as a person because of all the abuse we got in the end. And... Um, some of it became very personal personal and quite um, distressing. And um, all three of us agreed that it just was not worth the hard work that we were putting in. It just was not worth it anymore because we felt that we had no chance of finding a new track. And we felt we'd outstayed our welcome, Ian, really. So quite a lesson, but some great times. We won trophies. We had great riders, great lads working with us who've gone on to have good careers uh, Paul Stark, Steve Worrell, Ashley Morris, Nathan Greaves, Max Clegg, riders like that who've gone on to have good, solid professional speedway careers. Adam Roynan was with us. Overall, despite what I've said previously, it was a great time and the positives outweighed the negatives. And I'm proud that part of what I've done in life has been to be a director of a speedway club. I'm glad I did it. And not just that, but a director of a, of a Speedway club that, that you have a massive fondness for as well, personally. Yes, you know, those those great days of Dudley Wood, 
as a fan. And then back in 1990, uh, I was on hospital radio at the time in Dudley, and uh, I got a call from Colin Pratt at Cradley. Um, and he said, uh, our announcer's leaving. Would you like to come and be our announcer at Cradley? And you, you'd also, we also need somebody to take over the programme editing. Um, I know you're on hospital radio, and I know that you're working at the local papers, so you can talk and you can write. Do you want to come and have a chat? So in 1990, I became the announcer and programme editor of Cradley Heath. And that was a dream come true. Wow. Absolute dream come true. Uh, and I was with them every year until they closed in 1996, uh, in a year at Stoke. And they, were, they were evicted from Dudleywood disgracefully in 1995. And I was with them in the season at Stoke at 96 in the announcer's box. Um, did the programme. And also I did their... Do you remember Club Call, Ian? Where yeah. it was like premium rate telephone service. Yeah. Coming, coming up in a minute, we're going to hear from Billy Hamill here on the Heathens Club Call Line. But he's going to be talking to us about the wonderful meeting that we had at the weekend against Wolverhampton. Uh, but just a reminder, our next home meeting at Dudleywood is this coming Saturday when we welcome the uh, Coventry Bees in another Midlands derby, 7.30 to start time. And we'll have Colin Pratt previewing that meeting for us later in the week. But in the meantime, let's now hear from Billy Hamill. <laughs> 60p a minute people pay for that make them hang on <laughs> oh 60p a minute and the club the club earned good money out of it fair play to them uh i think i i used to do um I used to, my first job in in radio. My first job I got paid for anyway because I did hospital radio like you. And by the way, yes. no no speedway promoters ever phoned me when I was there. <laughs> it was um, I did uh, AA Roadwatch, did travel news, and I, uh, one, one of the jobs was um, you had to update the uh, the premium rate phone line where <laughs> you had to speak for something like three minutes and just list off every set of roadworks in the north. <laughs> Update it every hour. The A19 between Selby and Brayton is struggling right now. Ian Brannan, AA Roadwatch. That's exactly it. Yeah, I was there. <laughs> first, the first, the first broadcast I did on AA Roadwatch was on BBC Radio York, and it was <laughs> for very much that area you're talking about. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Great time. Um, we got a lot in common here. We have very similar, very similar routes <laughs> into it. You're listening to the Humans of Speedway podcast. I'm Ian Brannan in conversation with the voice of British and GP Speedway around the world, Nigel Pearson. And before the end of this podcast, we're going to put together Nigel's Speedway Paradise, the ultimate team on the ultimate track in the ultimate venue. With the ultimate referee, will Kelvin Tatum make the lineup? That's the big question. We'll find out in the next half hour or so. But Nigel, back to you. Already talked about your first experiences of working in Speedway, announcing and editing the program at Cradley. But how did your journey into broadcasting and commentating begin? Yeah, well, um, back in 1989, I just started my first full-time job as a writer with a newspaper in the West Midlands uh, County Express Group, which covered Halezo in Stourbridge and Dudley. And I started as a trainee sports writer, and within six months, they promoted me to sports editor. But at the same time, I was doing hospital radio, and I was, I was going to West Bromwich Albion Games and covering it for DDHB, Dudley and District Hospital Broadcasting. <laughs> and um, at the same time, I sent demo cassettes off, you know, the TDKC 90 and all that. And I sent demo cassettes off to BBC WM, Beacon Radio, and BRMB. Um, I think I did two games for WM when they were short, and they gave me an opportunity, which was fantastic. But then George Gavin at BRMB gave me a call and said, how do you fancy Hales Owen Town versus Tranmere in the FA Cup on a phone line? So George booked me a phone line at Hales Owen, 
November 89, FA Cup. Still got the programme now. Um, and I did, I think, eight updates into Saturday Sport with George on BRMB. Um, and then I did every weekend from there on. He, he just put me as part of the team. And I think within three weeks or there or thereabouts, I'd, I'd have to Google fixtures that year. But certainly on or around November or December 89, it gave me Manchester United versus Aston Villa at Old Trafford. Oh, hello. And <laughs> I just could not believe it. I, I, he rang me because there's no email then, no text messaging. Hi, Nigel, it's George. Fancy Old Trafford Saturday? Do I? What? Do I? So um, George gave me that opportunity and I'd started doing football every weekend, midweek as well. And I remember going to Scarborough versus Walsall on a Tuesday night. Uh, Did the rounds, went to all the lower league grounds covering Walsall. That was on BRMB. So that was how the broadcasting started. Um, And then in 96, uh, a guy called Colin Wilshire... uh, approached me for Beacon. They were going to revamp their sports coverage and actually start taking it seriously and, and do contracts with Wolves and West Brom to, to do commentary deals, which didn't necessarily go down too well with Tom at BRMB, Tom Ross at BRMB at the time, because um, not only was I moving away, but um, you know we were effectively in opposition, even though we were commercial radio together. Obviously, yeah. we're trying to build listeners up in Wolverhampton and Shropshire, uh, and Tom and BRMB had exclusivity with Birmingham Villa, you know. So it, that's how it moved on to to Beacon. Um, so I presented the sports show, I commentated on the sports show, and I did Monday to Friday breakfast sports bulletins from six a.m. until ten a.m. Wow! Um, so it was it was busy, but it was fun. And also after that, then um, Beacon, I'd just taken out a mortgage. And then Beacon decided to drop sport and get rid of me. That's commercial radio for you. There you go, Ian. There you go. I knew that would resonate somewhere. Um, the Then Talk Sport was just being launched. I started doing games when it was called Talk Radio back in the day. And then in 2000, they launched Talk Sport. And I asked one of the producers at Talk Sport, what does that mean then? He said, more work for you. So then that kicked on. And I'm still with Talk Sport to this day, 20 years later. And I've done, I'd, I look back on my time with Talk Sport with, with great pride because I've presented, I've commentated, I've read sports bulletins, I've done Formula One coverage. I was, I was the first commentator, uh, the first lead commentator on Talk Sport when they won national commentary, uh, when they won a national commentary uh, contract. Myself and Alvin Martin did a year, and then myself and Stan Collymore. Wow. Um, but then the TV had started kicking in, Ian, because I'd started doing Sky Sports Speedway. I was given meetings there. And then the, the boss of the Sky Sports Speedway team also was the boss of the Sky Sports Darts team. And he knew I'd been a fan of darts, because every time we poked up at a meeting, I'd talk about it. Great Premier League the other night. You know, match play was good. I watched that. That was brilliant. And then one day, he just we were in a pub somewhere in London, and he just pulled me to one side. Right, Nigel, there's more darts coming in on Sky. Do you fancy a dabble? And then in 2006, I went and did my first darts commentary at the Circus Tavern in Purfleet, in the last, the last World Championship to be held at the Circus Tavern. And I was probably more nervous than I, have, than I ever have been for anything in my life. And I started then, and I'm still with the Sky Sports darts team to this day, with a wonderful team of people, and probably do 
25 to 30 days of darts per year on the Sky Sports team. Great to be part of that team. So that's, in a nutshell, my broadcast career, how it evolved and where it's at now. And it's, it's good to have the variety as well, you know, different sports and you don't just become pigeonholed into, into one thing because, I mean, for you, it spreads it out through the whole year, doesn't it, really? Yeah, the, the variety, different eggs in different baskets. And as you well know in this industry, Ian, one door closes and you've still got other doors open. So, you know, take it while you can. If nobody's ever had a go at doing commentary before, and there's no reason that the vast majority of the public would have done, but try having a go at it by putting it on the TV, turning the sound down, and just and just trying to commentate for a minute or two minutes, and you find out how hard it is. It's a very specific skill. I mean, how did you learn your way into that? Uh, I, I've always backed myself, and I think anybody who wants to be a sports commentator, uh, reporter, whatever, has to have confidence in their own ability. And confidence is what, has carried me through really i listened to i listened to various commentators i thought one who took a sport out of the dark ages into the modern day era was eddie hemmings with the rugby league um i was a huge fan of eddie's and i loved his commentary style Hmm. and i decided from that and listening to some radio commentators you have to project a strong authoritative voice and that's what I try and do. And even though I've got a game in the World Darts Championships between two players that I've never seen play before and I've only just heard of, if you talk with confidence and authority, you give the viewer the impression that you know if you know everything about it and that you're an expert. I mean, we all prepare anyway with notes. You get your games and so you get to know you, 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 what you're going to be commentating on. So you all prepare, but it's important to have a strong authoritative voice to portray the drama of sport and where we're at in a particular game in my opinion and that confidence i think ian you know yes by all means have a look at the telly turn the sound off and try and commentate on it um but you've got to be a confident person who backs your own ability and listening to eddie hemmings and other commentators and and i, I love george gavin's presenting style on brmb um, Ian Dark, I'm a massive fan of as a commentator in boxing and football. You know, there's so many talented commentators that I've listened to and, and, and learned from and taken bits of each of those commentators into my own game, really. I was a huge fan of Eddie Waring when I was a kid. Ray French replaced Eddie and, and him and Alec Murphy formed a partnership. I, I'm not decrying them in any way, shape or form, but Eddie Hemmings and Mike Stevenson dragged that sport forward into a new era of Super League on Sky. That is my opinion. Again, I've got to mention my late former darts colleagues, you know, Dave Lanning and Sid Waddell, to have the opportunity for six years to sit with those guys in commentary boxes all over the UK and Europe was remarkable. For When I went to school, if you'd have told me, in future life, you're going to sit next to Dave Lanning and Sid Waddell, I'd have, I'd have gone, you've been drinking. You know, it's it's just it's just so fantastic to look back and and now the modern day guys in the darts team as well. Wayne Mardle, what a character. And I've done darts on the radio. Paul Nicholson, Chris Mason, you know, all these lads. Really great people that we're talking about in terms of their knowledge of darts and their delivery on the radio and television. And there's a lot of talent out there. And I honestly do feel that the you know, to take a little bit from each one that you listen to and take it on board 
you can still always improve your game. But to any newcomers who want to try it, be confident and take the best bits of people that you've listened to, take them on board, put them into your own game and improve yourself as much as you can. Sid Waddell, though, I mean, I mean, he was fantastic, wasn't he? I met him once and, uh, you know, but like so many people, I think, you know, just exactly the same off screen as, as on. <laughs> Sid Waddell, what a character. <laughs> in, the, in the commentary box, Ian, right, when I first started, and he, and he never lost this, if he felt there was a gap where he wanted you to talk, me to talk, it punched me on the shoulder. And as the game went on and it got more exciting, the punches got harder. And I came out of the commentary box after a marathon game at the match play once in the World Championship. And I'm sure I had bruises on my shoulder. It was GBH. <laughs> and that was that was Sid. Come on, kidder. Your turn, kidder. He put the microphone on the on the desk and just punch you in the shoulder. And I'm thinking, oh, right. Here we go then. Topsy needs for the match. <laughs> <laughs> this must be me because Sid's just absolutely walloped me in the shoulder and what a character, you know, he, he's, uh, he, he, was, he was fantastic. And, and what I remember about Sid as well, one night at the City West Hotel in Dublin for the World Grand Prix, um, he didn't do this very often, but we went for a drink in the bar upstairs afterwards, and, and he just said he fancied it. Anyway, he, the drink started flowing, the Guinness was going down, and Sid Waddell, uh, madcap character anyway, but with a few drinks in him, wow, couldn't understand a word he was saying, so he decided to ring his wife. So you can imagine how that conversation went. And the next morning, his wife rang Sid to check that he was okay. And he said, yeah, I'm okay. It was all Nigel Pearson's fault. He took me to the bar. He got me drunk. That's a load of nonsense. It wasn't my fault at all. He was up for a drink. But he blamed me, and I took one for the team. But great to be around. And what you saw and heard with Sid is what you got. And when he passed in 2012, I was deeply sad and, and devastated by it because... Uh, he, he, he welcomed me with open arms into that Sky Sports Darts team when I was a bag of nerves and he was there and, you know, I'll never forget the man and, I, and I'll always regard it as a privilege and an honour to have worked with Sid and with Dave Lanning as well. Both sorely missed, of course, but both legends and forever will be in the commentary box. And Dave Lanning, of course, I mean, that must have been something else because he was the voice of Speedway and one of your childhood icons, no doubt. Absolutely, and of course... Dave and I, we'd be in the press room at the Ali Pali or whatever, and, and all Dave Lanning wanted to talk about was Speedway. I'm trying to do my preparation for a, a preliminary round game between a player from Hong Kong and a player from Singapore that I'd never heard of, and I'm trying to make notes about these players. And all Dave, all Dave wanted to do was talk about when he was promoter at Eastport, at West Ham Speedway and uh, you know his memories of a world final at Wembley, and, which I loved. I absolutely loved. But I'm thinking, we're at the Alexandra Palace at the World Darts Championship, and all good old Dave wants to do is talk about Speedway. <laughs> and it was, it was remarkable in so many... And then, of course, the next morning in the hotel, breakfast. Mind if I join you, dear boy? I remember Los Angeles in 82. And I'm thinking, we're off again here. Speedway, Speedway, Speedway. <laughs> <laughs> what a position to be in. Yeah, brilliant. And... I remember when uh, the Las Vegas Desert Classic, I went over to work for Sky on three of those. And uh, the one trip I brought my wife with me, I paid for her airfare and, and all the rest of it. And Dave invited us out for breakfast. And Dave, in the Mandalay Bay, Dave Lanning paid for mine and my wife Kerry's breakfast. And we had a lovely hour and a half with Dave. What a gentleman. And... Um, 
really enjoyed that. And things like that I'll never forget as well, Ian. Absolutely fantastic stories and, and fantastic memories, of course, as well. This is the Humans of Speedway podcast. I'm Ian Brannan, and I'm in conversation with not just any human of Speedway. It is the voice box of Speedway in Britain and in the GPs, Nigel Pearson, who you welcome into your homes on a regular basis. And Nigel has seen many tracks around the world and around Europe as part of his job uh, commentating on these uh, great fixtures. But now it's time for him to put all of that knowledge into creating his Speedway Paradise, where we want to come up with the ultimate Speedway event, the ultimate track inside the great stadium that's going to bring that atmosphere. And also two teams facing each other that you just cannot miss from any era in time. So we'll work through it and Nigel will start off. Which track... Out of all your experience, are you going to pick for this? Right. Well, the track um, has got to be the National Speedway Stadium track at Bellevue. I absolutely love that track. There's so many different racing lines. And, you know, every meeting at Bellevue is better than the world final at Wembley in 81, without a doubt. The track, they nailed it. Chris Morton, David Gordon, they nailed the design of that track. And fair play to them. They wanted to create something similar to Hyde Road, didn't they? And I think they certainly achieved it. Well, I saw them regularly at uh, Grand Prix meetings, you know. They came to Torren, uh, David and Chris, who were the promoters of Bellevue at the time. And, you know, I'm not going to go over old, old ground about, unfortunately, what happened in the end. And there's good people in charge of Bellevue now, great people. But they went on fact-finding missions. And as the years went on, they got ridiculed. Oh, David Gordon and Chris Morton are here. It must be a jolly up. No, actually, they took a bit of Torren and they took a bit of Hyde Road and mixed that in for the design of the National Speedway Stadium. And they got the track absolutely bang on. And every meeting there is superb. And I love going there. Ah, but do you know what Torren's based on? Oh, you, you know, you, that's a loaded question. You know the answer. So uh, they've got banked. They're quite banked. So you're not going to tell me Oddsall or, or Halifax, are you? Bradford, yeah. Oh, you know more than me. Well done. Listen, you, you learn something new every day. Fair play. A bit of oddsall in Torren, Poland. Yeah, Per Jonsson was consulted uh, when they were designing the new track at Torren. He's a massive Torren legend, is Per Jonsson, but of course won the World Championship in Bradford, 1990. We were both there. So uh, I guess he has a fondness for Oddsall. The only thing with Torren, though, Ian, is you can't get a pint of Tetley's Bitter like you could at Oddsall. Ah, uh, you see, you can't have everything. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so with that in mind then, what stadium would that track go in? Uh, I'm going to uh, purely... Uh, I'm going to go for an old-style stadium, purely for sentimental reasons, and I'm going to go Wembley Stadium with the Twin Towers and the Royal Box, the old Wembley. We'll have the Bellevue track in the old Wembley Stadium. How about that? Seven riders going up to the Royal Box to claim their prize. And the brass band marching across the centre green before the meeting. National anthem before the start. And Abide With Me, the cup final song. Oh, yes. It brings a tear to your eye. <laughs> On to the big question then. Your ultimate team. Your ideal one to seven, alive or dead, past or present, no points limits. Over to you. Number one, Ivan Major. Okay. Number two, Eric Gunderson. Yeah, this is a great question. I might as well just reel off seven riders that I've loved watching now. He is Ivan Major, Eric Gunderson, who was a hero. I'm going to say Darcy Ward thrilled us magnificently during his relatively short career. Um, natural on a speedway bike. I'm going to say Ty Woffenden, obviously. There's four. Uh... 
I need another one from the 80s, really, to balance it up. So, uh, Hans Nielsen, grudgingly loved watching him ride, uh, even though he was always in opposition to Eric and in opposition to Cradley. But what a rider, the professor of his profession, Hans Nielsen. I've got two left. So I've got to go for either Greg or Billy. And I think purely because Billy wasn't quite so good at gating as Greg, I'm going to go Billy for entertainment. And then I have to, I have to include this man um, because he will absolutely slaughter me if I don't. Kelvin Tatum, MBE. <laughs> well, it, w- it would be Speedway out of the top draw, so it's got to be done. And he can bring the dirtometer. But a, a lineup of legends there. It's not bad. It might be expensive on the wage bill, though, Ian. That's not a concern, though. Don't worry about it. Somebody else is picking up the tab. <laughs> that sounds good to me. I always like it when somebody else picks up the tab. <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> so in your experience, then, of, of watching GPs and so on, who would be the ideal ref? I think right up there in my time watching Speedway. I mean, I've worked with some referees in my announcing days in announcers' boxes at... Uh, Cradley, Wolverhampton, Sheffield. I thought Paul Ackroyd was a very good referee who's now in charge of the Benevolent Fund. Um, I thought that Graham Reeve was a good referee. Uh, Graham Brody back in the day, top, top referee, uh, handled meetings very well. But I think, you know, uh, looking at more modern referees, if you like, I, I think Krista Gardell of Sweden is very good. But I think overall, I would have to say Tony Steele. Um, he did a lot of Grand Prix meetings. He's a very calm, measured individual. Seems to make the right decisions on a regular basis. So the referee for my all-time meeting to commentate on would be Tony Steele. He's a, he's a popular choice. Is he? Yeah, I thought he might be. <laughs> very cool, very measured, very calm. But I'm, I'm convinced his hair is a perm. It's not natural, that. He won't have it, but it's definitely a perm. Well, maybe we should get him on a future episode and maybe that could be my first question. Nigel Pearson reckons, and he's no expert on hairstyles, by the way, Nigel Pearson. (laughs) Uh, For riders, I've said, who would be their ideal pit crew for this event? But I guess for you, if you're going to be in the commentary box, it'd be who would be your ideal co-commentator? But of course, you've got to remember, you've picked Kelvin in your team, so he's working already. Yeah. Oh, crikey, I've just ruled him out of the commentary box, haven't I? Awkward. Look what I've done there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, so Kelvin, in between his races, will be available for analysis in the pits. Pits reporter Sophie Blake or Steve Brandon or Natalie or anyone down in the pits, they can go to Kelvin in between his heats for analysis. So sat by me in the commentary box, it was have to be Steve Johnston, Jono. Such a fun character. Commentated with him quite a lot uh, when he was over here. In the Grand Prix era, went on Grand Prix trips with Steve. This was before Kelv did every one. And Jono was never a world champion, but he had a good career, and he is one of life's characters. Absolutely great fun to be with. I've got to say, Jan Steckman, very measured, very calm, very intelligent in the way he describes action. Um, and, and, and I think he deserves a mention as well. I think Dave Rowe and Sam do a good job on Eurosport as well, so fair play to them. Um, But I think overall, for the fun element, because it's all about trying to provide a bit of fun to the viewer as well and provide the enjoyment factor, I'll have to go Steve Jono Johnston. Here's your next one then, and you've obviously had experience of being a promoter and being a commentator, but 
What would be the first rule you would change if you got your hands on that rule book? Ooh, I'm very frustrated, a bit like Kelvin, and we sound like a stuck record. I'm very frustrated by the amount of restarts in modern-day Speedway. And I just feel that maybe one area to cut this out, if a rider gambles and gets a flyer, then let him go. You know, it's part and parcel. It'll even itself out. If a rider decides to gamble, he may touch the tapes. Stick to tape touching only. If a rider touches the tapes, he's out. Full stop. Any any movement or anything like that, if a rider gambles, let him gamble. All part of the fun. One week it'll work for you. The next week it'll work against you. Maybe, yeah, I can understand why you've got to ask all four riders to sit still at the start. But look, to cut out these constant red lights and restarts which cause frustration and they all go back to the pits and the mechanics come out and not all referees put the two minutes on straight away maybe just let them have a gamble at the start and if they hit the tapes they're out and if not they're lucky and off they go I think an interesting thing that Scott Nichols mentioned in a previous episode of this series was holding a bike still at the start especially on like temporary tracks as well where the bike's wanting to move and, you know, from a fan's point of view, it can be easier said than done to hold a bike still. Yeah, I can accept that because I'm not a rider and, and I, I get what Scott was saying there. Totally understand that. So maybe, you know, that backs up what I'm saying. If you touch the tapes, you're out. And if you take a gamble and you get away with it, good luck to you. And the final question then, who would be the opposition? Now, this can be any team in their full state from any time in history, any league in the world... Who's going to be the opposition for this Nigel Pearson 1-7 All-Star team? We'll go Cradley 83, right? And we will replace Eric Gunderson at number three with Darcy Ward as a guest. How's that? Sounds like a fair swap. <laughs> Darcy at number three, Simon Wig one, Lance King two, Darcy Ward at three, Phil Collins four, Alan Graham five, Yano Pedersen and Peter Rawl at reserve. How's that? It does sound like the dream team. <laughs> if only we could get it to happen, but in the meantime, we can imagine it in our minds. Great questions, Ian, and um, great to discuss things like this during this time. You know, it's a bit of fun. You know, Kelvin and I uh, having a great time doing a, a podcast ourselves as well, so unashamed plug for that. And fa- thanks for your kind comments on that as well. Uh, Jason Doyle as a guest. We've got Jono lined up, Steve Johnston. We're talking to Rick Miller as well in uh, in California very soon. We're like, we've got other guests lined up. So these podcasts, I think, are brilliant. Yours as well is different because it's humans in Speedway. I think that's a, a great element of it. And um, I think during this time where there is no Speedway, it's fantastic. And to have somebody like yourself doing it is, is excellent. Oh, no, not at all. And thank you for your support too. It You know, it's greatly appreciated and... Um, Good luck with your own podcast and um, thanks for sharing your stories too about how you found your way into broadcasting and giving us your your ultimate Speedway fixture. It's been uh, great to hear that and um, most of all though, we, we hope that we can hear you back on the TV at the, at the side of a Speedway track very soon. Yes, and let's hope that um, the situation allows us to do so. Uh, the promoters are making all the right noises, but of course it all boils down to what the government say where we are with the situation and fingers crossed we do because I miss it badly and I'll tell you what Ian I look forward to meeting up with you at some stage one of the northern tracks maybe or Cardiff even we'll we'll meet up we'll have a beer and we'll have a chinwag <laughs> sounds good and I'll, I'll certainly hold you to that it's been really great chatting 
Thanks to Nigel Pearson for joining me on this episode of the Humans of Speedway podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Of course, check out the other episodes if you haven't heard them yet. And don't forget to give us a rating and subscribe so you get future episodes straight to your device. Plus, if you'd like to leave us a comment or suggest names you'd like to hear on the podcast, it'd be great to hear from you too and we'll see what we can do. Meanwhile, see you next time on Humans of Speedway. Podcast Network.